Hello and welcome to another episode of GDPR Now, our podcast dedicated to all things related to data privacy and data security with all sorts of technology in between. Your host today is me, Karen Heaton, owner of Data Protection for Business, still recording from my home office in Southwest London. In this episode, we're going to talk about the future of credential management, self-sovereign identity, as it's also known, as well as its other name, decentralized identity. So I am delighted to be able to introduce you to you today, James Monahan. James has spent his career so far building up startups that use technology to improve how people interact with businesses and with each other. His journey so far has taken him from the early days of mobile messaging through the account security setups for the world's largest online brands up until today, where he is in the exciting realm of digital identity. Currently, James serves as the Vice President of Product Management for Evernum, a company pioneering the movement towards self-sovereign or decentralized identity, as previously noted. James holds a master's degree in engineering. He's also a certified information privacy technologist and a half-decent marathon runner. So James, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Karen. It's a pleasure to be here. You're welcome. Now, importantly, tell us about your best marathon time. Ah, well, yeah. So my best marathon time was uh, a few years ago now when I was a younger, lighter man. Um, but uh, yeah, I ran a, a 249 at the Berlin Marathon in 2016, which is great. That is really amazing. Well done. Crikey. Was that a lot of training? It, it was, but I was in a, a bit of a career break that summer. So I was able to spend a lot of time uh, at, at the track and uh, less time chained to a desk. So the, the planets aligned for that. I, I've not run nearly so quickly since. But, uh... <laughs> but you have run and you've set up Evernum. Would you like to tell us about the company and what it's doing? Because, you know, I saw you a couple of years ago at the Data Protection Forum, you did a presentation on self-sovereign identity and I was blown away actually. So that's why I'm really pleased you're on the show today. So please tell us a bit more about what you're doing there. Uh, be my pleasure. So as you mentioned at the start, you know we're working in this field of self-sovereign identity, which is a bit of an unhelpful moniker in some ways, really. It's quite a mouthful, don't you agree? I totally agree. <laughs> yeah, so what, what, what that really speaks to is not so much uh, wresting control from the governments and declaring that, you know, me as an individual, uh, you should take my word on everything. Um, it's more about a fundamental rebalance in how those relationships work. So sovereign identity comes down to this perspective that your identity is not this singular you, like a username that you use everywhere in every one of your relationships, for example. Like human relationships, it's deeply multifaceted. And actually, it's comprised really of those relationships and the things that you might use to prove things about yourself in those relationships. And the, the fundamental shift is that uh, you as the individual should be the final word on who gets to know what about you not just uh, the things you choose to share and the things you don't, like my lovely marathon time that you mentioned, but also which third parties, if any, uh, are in the middle of that relationship and getting to learn all that juicy metadata that, that helps them build up their business models. So really, it's about a more human-centric and more privacy-enhancing version of digital identity than what we've been able to enjoy so far on the web. Yeah, because it's highly relevant, obviously, now and has been for the last five to 10 years. Um, the pandemic's digitalized so many services. We're constantly having to create user IDs and passwords and validate who we are. I have no idea how many organizations have got a copy of my passport, 
passport, for example, my driving license. And I think in your presentation a couple of years ago, one of the first things you said that caught my attention was, well, how many accounts do you think you've got for various online services? And I thought, oh, maybe 10 or 20. And I think you or your colleague said, well, it's probably more like 100. And actually, it probably is, especially now. And that's, you know, only two years further on. No, exactly. And you could look on the surface of that and say, well, but we've got password managers and my web browser fills in these forms and it, it doesn't really matter. And it's true, we've papered over some of the issues with that model, um, but it still leaves at least a couple of big gaps in, in my view. The most conspicuous is that those accounts, those identities, if you will, they're not yours in any meaningful sense. Like you sign up to some terms of service when you create those accounts, um, quite often you need to create an account in order to be able to access something. So it's quite a coercive model of consent there. You submit a bunch of personal data so that they can tell that you're a real person they want to deal with. And then that information sits there in their database. And really, if you are allowed to do anything else with it at all from that point on, um, it's really very much on that company's terms. In some cases, you can't do anything useful with it. Um, in other cases, like our sort of LinkedIn profiles or uh, you know sign in with Facebook and things like that, they're very keen for you to share, but they get to pick and choose who you can share it with. They have quite a binary model of you often feel like you're sharing everything or nothing. And uh, most importantly for them, they get to see everywhere that you're sharing it and who you're sharing it with and build up this whole shadow profile but again, you get no control over, no say over and, and so forth. And so, so that's sort of one category of, of problems that I think is, is really challenging there. And so you can imagine alternative though, right? You, you reeled off a bunch of my accomplishments very generously uh, at the start of the call. You know, if I wanted to prove any of those things to you, I could do so. I've got pieces of paper that, that show that I've got a degree um, that show I ran that silly marathon time and um, that show my qualifications and so forth. And they're, you know, they're heavy paper, they might have holograms on them, they've got things that allow you to tell they're authentic. And they come from institutions that you recognize and therefore feel inclined to trust what they're saying about me. And they're in my house, right? They're in my wallet or they're in my filing cabinet. And if I want to show them to you, uh, that's really no one's business but yours and mine, right? I, I get it out, I show it to you, you make a decision based on what you what you know about that interaction and that document and then and off we go. And that's, that's how things work in the physical world, right? We carry wallets and purses and we have filing cabinets at home and so forth. And we bring to bear physical credentials like driver's licenses, passports, membership cards, coupons, etc., all the time. And it's, it's not perfect. I mean, billions of pounds of productivity are wasted manually verifying those things. Um, and so it's, it's certainly not perfect, but it's a familiar and quite natural model where you know, I don't have to overshare in order to get you to trust me enough to record this podcast. I can share just enough that, that shows that I'm a relevant person that you want to talk to. And there's no fundamental reason why that can't work online, except that it wasn't designed in when the internet was designed, right? Correct. Yeah, it wasn't. It's very, all the credentials are all siloed in every single company that requires them. They're all held in multiple databases all over the world. I mean, if we were ever to do an exercise of trying to find how many Karen Heaton bits of data are exist in the ethernet rather then you know, how many pieces would there be? I mean, I don't even want to think about it. Exactly. And, you know, you could argue that because many colossal businesses have been built off the back of that and 
here you and I are talking to each other on on essentially a uh, almost free. I mean, it's not completely free, but a very low cost digital service. We're we're many miles apart. Uh, you know, we've benefited a lot from this, right? We have, and and so have the economy in general. Um, but also our our freedoms have been eroded in some subtle ways and some pretty overt ways. I mean, elections have been influenced and, and things like that. So I think it's right to question whether that model of handing control over something so innately human as your identity to these large, uh, quite extractive organizations is appropriate. And so, you know, what we are proposing is both a, I suppose you could call it an ideological shift that says, look, we draw all those pictures that have your company in the middle with the person in the middle and see what that does to the way you design user experiences, right? Yeah. Um, and then a technical innovation, which actually is is both subtle and profound that just says, look, take that model of uh, paper or plastic credentials that, that we were talking about a moment ago and produce digital equivalents of those. So a digital document that contains useful attributes that you may want to know about me, uh, make it tamper-proof by uh, digitally signing it, stick the key, the verification key for that somewhere public so anyone can tell that this credential came from an institution that they might be willing to trust. And then don't put that credential in a big database somewhere where everyone can look at it or where some company can just give it to me, right? You could literally email it to me. You could store it in some fancy digital wallet on my phone or on my laptop. And then I can choose to reveal attributes from that credential to you or to the bank or to anyone else I need to establish a relationship with. And that allows you to have truly the best of both worlds, a, a digitally native, uh, almost frictionless series of interactions where you can instantly verify anything that you need to about me for us to have a relationship. But that is not mediated by third parties who get to set the rules of the road and uh, observe everything that's happening. It's still under my control and no one else needs to know that we're having that interaction unless I choose to share it. At its core, that's what self-sovereign identity is about. And you know, Evernim's mission is all about bringing back that humanity into our human interactions, ultimately. So uh, I'm totally bought into the, uh, the to this solution and, and the benefits for it. But uh, as a solution or a piece of technology itself, I mean, what are the key components of it? How does it work? I mean, not, not a great technical detail, but, you know, broadly speaking, people might be thinking, oh, actually, this sounds really interesting, but how is it put together? Who needs to be involved with it? Yeah, it's a great question. And fundamentally, it comes down to this sort of three-party model of trust. So a credential has an issuer, which is some institution or organization or another individual. Yeah, the government, the university, etc. Exactly, yeah. that, that can say some useful things about me that some other person might choose to trust. Now, not every credential needs to be one that I choose to share with someone else. It might, it might be something that I just keep for myself as proof of some accomplishment or qualification. But you know, usually what you need is, is issuers and they could be academic professional certification bodies. They could be government departments who are usually the, the definitive authority on you know, who is a citizen of a country and who has certain rights and privileges and so forth. Uh, but it could be your sports club indicating your membership. It could be any, any of those things. So you need issuers of credentials. You need uh, holders, so individuals who possess the ability to receive those credentials store them safely um, and then respond to requests to share things about themselves and then you need verifiers or relying parties so people out there who are willing to accept proof that is delivered in this manner right so proof that is 
from the individual, but sponsored, if you will, by, by some issuer. And so all of the pictures we draw for how we help companies and, and institutions change uh, the way they're doing business or the way they're interacting with stakeholders have this sort of triangle in them of issuer, holder, verifier. And what goes along those arrows is, uh, is these so-called verifiable credentials, right? Small digital documents that I mentioned earlier, which contain the useful information, as well as this digital signature that allows you to instantly verify that it's not been tampered with and that it really belongs to me without having to phone home to that issuer. Okay. And also I understand that the solution is delivered via the use of distributed ledger technology as well. How does that fit into the, the triangle of issuer holders and verifiers? Yeah, so usually uh, underneath that triangle, you, you draw something that represents the common trust between that issuer and that verifier, right? So some way that when you as a relying party are presented with proof of a credential, you can figure out if it originated with, uh, with a party that you trust. Uh, and so you could just keep a list of those to yourself, you know, manually go out there and do a bunch of one-to-one deals with, uh, with issuers that you trust, keep that list private. But the world that we're trying to build towards here is, is one that works like the physical world where I can use my British plastic driver's license in the United States to prove I'm old enough to buy alcohol. And there's no agreement that exists, no formal legal agreement. There's no technical infrastructure. There's nothing. There's just the fact that they're capable of recognizing that that really did come from the DBLA. Um, And then they make their own trust decision based on it. And so to bring that into the digital realm, what we look for is something that can act as a global register of who are all the issuers that we might care about. And not everybody cares about every issuer, but fundamentally you need to be able to look up uh, where did this credential come from and how do I know that the digital key it was signed with uh, is the real one, um, not one that, that someone is, is faking. And so you know, self-sovereign identity doesn't depend on a distributed ledger or, or a blockchain in any way, but many implementations do use uh, blockchain technology for that, that base layer that we just described because it helps you to answer that question of, well, who is going to run that list of identifiers for me? Yeah, because if that list is then run by one or two companies, you've kind of handed all that power over to them. That's right. And and getting one that everyone could agree on, I think, would be very tough. You know, you could argue that by default, we kind of trust, you know, Microsoft and, and Google today. We trust the certificate authorities, you know, VeriSign and, and their ilk uh, today. You know, all of the Internet's current infrastructure is, is based on that. You could say it's not working that badly, but... You know, we know that covert agencies uh, have subverted those institutions and inserted their own keys. We know that uh, you know, some countries run shadow versions of that infrastructure because they don't trust these large, predominantly American and European countries to do so. And so, again, if, if we want something that is really universal, it would be best to not have to pick any one company, government, NGO. And so, so that's the clever bit that using a, a decentralized solution allows you to solve for. It, it's simply answering the question of, instead of how can I trust the one company running this database? Instead, you just have to ask yourself, do I believe in this moment that no more than two thirds of the institutions running this database are actively trying to deceive me right now? And that the answer may still be yes, but it, it really changes the balance of how you evaluate that decision. Um, 
and takes it more towards one of mathematics and game theory and so forth rather than legal contracts and recourse in the in the court system and so forth. Oh, it's, it is fascinating how, how you know the, the idea that we're running all of this in maths is just great <laughs> I think it's <laughs> <Yeah>. wonderful <laughs> you know we've talked a bit about what the solution is and the, and, and the components of it so I think it would be great just to talk through some of some examples that you've worked on and how they're being used in real life because there's some real current ones that aren't there especially come out as a result of the pandemic that, that's right and, and of course you know when you, when you talk about this sort of approach you often use the future tense you know in, in the future everyone will have a digital wallet and it'll be so great um, and you know you often don't dwell on the fact that actually this is this is being used today and it has been for years and is, is delivering real outcomes so yeah there's, there's at least a couple I'd, i mean i could talk about this all day but there's at least a couple i'd like to highlight one you know you mentioned the pandemic you know here in the uk the national health service it's the largest employer in the country and the fifth largest employer in the world. They have uh, over 1.3 million members of staff and over 100,000 clinical days a year are wasted because of manual checks that have to be performed before that member of staff is able to actually start their work. So a junior doctor who may rotate uh, up to six times a year between, uh, between different hospitals that they're training at or in the heat of the pandemic, uh, an ICU doctor who needs to be redeployed from one part of the country to another, they are required, not, not unreasonably, because what they're doing is very sensitive and highly regulated, they're required to be vetted, which means they bring their passports, paper copies of their degree certificate, all kinds of proof of their, uh, of their employment history and so forth. Um, and a lot of that has to be uh, inspected in person because of the way certain regulations are written. Um, and then manually vetted and cross-referenced and things like that. It can take over 24 hours, basically, between you know showing up for work and actually being able to help a patient. And uh, that costs the NHS uh, a fortune in terms of you know, direct cost and also lost productivity. And you know the, the health workers I've spoken to are deeply frustrated by it as well. They're they're in the profession to make a difference, not to sit around doing doing admin. And so what we and and a, another innovative group of, of companies have been working on for a number of years now is what if you could have a digital staff passport, if you will, a set of credentials that attest to a, a health worker's biographic details, uh, professional qualifications, work history, and so forth, that could be instantly verified at their place of work. Um, that would uh, mean that you could be helping patients in minutes rather than uh, rather than in days, and it could start to chip away at that 100,000 wasted days and, and I think it's about 200 million pounds a year that's spent on digital identity, pre-employment checks, all, all that kind of thing. That all adds up. Exactly. <laughs> so we we were working with a company called uh, True, which is actually founded by two uh, NHS doctors for a number of years, actually since 2016, on a, a pilot program to show how this could work. And it initially targeted at uh, junior doctors, but with, with a view to scaling up across the whole NHS. And that that project was uh, was progressing, uh, you know, very nicely, but at the typical pace that you might imagine disruptive innovation happens in, in big organizations like, like the NHS. We've got some amazing sponsors in that organization, some really, really pioneering folks, but, you know, they, they work within certain constraints. But enter the pandemic, and then there is not just a long-term transformation goal, but an immediate pressing need, right? And so the rollout of this program was uh, was massively accelerated. So now it's live in many, many hospitals. And just recently, the NHS published some statistics about the impact it's had. And it's just incredibly gratifying to, to read this. Oh, that is brilliant. Yeah, the use of this passport can save, I mean, for, for a person 
doing the checks. It's it's up to two hours uh, per doctor that they're vetting, that it saves of just manual work. And because the employee themselves typically has to travel to that appointment, rebook things, what have you, it's, it's over three hours typically for them. So that's every single staff member that needs to be moved. It's had that impact. So you multiply that out, it's uh, it's got a massive effect. And there was one hospital where a relatively small number of staff used it. I think it was only 43 uh, used it, but it managed to avoid the creation of over 200 so-called honorary contracts between hospitals, which would have needed to be in place to facilitate the movement of that information and actually get the people to work. So it's had a, a really, really exciting impact. And of course, when you think about it, it's not the technology or anything like that that's so impressive. It's very natural. It's like, I'm, I work at Hospital A, I need to go and work some shifts at Hospital B, so I should be able to bring with me a certified copy of all the information that Hospital B will need, right? That is the obvious solution to this problem. It's just that doing that in any other way was far too complex and, and unfeasible. And so what this solution allows that employee to do is receive verifiable credentials from Hospital A, uh, carry them on their personal mobile device, securely stored, and then when they arrive at Hospital B, they can share them in such a way that they're instantly verified and all those checks can be done in, in a matter of minutes. Well, and it, you know, as someone who's worked as a contractor for many different types of companies, uh, you know, I've also had to go through the same sorts of verification checks every time I have to onboard, especially in financial services. You know, it's a huge amount of work. It, it's extraordinary. And financial services is, is so painful because, you know, vast sums. I mean, across the world, it is, we're talking hundreds of billions are spent trying to combat financial crime. Um, and yet the state of the art is, you know, passport, utility statements, uh, you know, things like that, maybe a bit of behavioral biometrics. I mean, it's just, it's barely moving the needle. And, and I've been told that directly by senior executives at, at banks in, in more than one country huge amounts are spent to comply with the letter of the regulation, but actually a lot of the, the, the tasks that they're asked to do um, aren't actually the things that are helping to, to stop crime, um, which is which is really frustrating. And so you can imagine again, how nice it would be for a, a customer of a financial institution to be able to instantly prove that they are indeed a resident of this country. They, they do live at this address. They have a acceptable credit rating, what have you, and then apply for a financial product. Or, or even just open a bank account. Well, exactly. Trying to open a bank account is, you, you need to prepare yourself yeah. for a lot of pain. I, I know some, some businesses, you know, a startup I worked with a few years ago, they could set up a company here, they could do all sorts of things, they could get an organisation up and running. Could they open a bank account? He said it was the hardest thing they had to do. Yeah, yeah. And, then, and once you've done it once, you know, you go through all those hurdles, like we talked about earlier, None of that is useful to you. If you need a different kind of account, another account, you've got to do the process again. So actually in, in 2019, uh, we did a piece of work with Deloitte and Onfido uh, inside the FCA regulatory sandbox. Um, and we showed that actually you could do these checks once and allow them to be reused in such a way that they were just as trustworthy the second and third time as they were the first time. And so you could take something like the Onfido experience, which you've probably been through it if you've opened any of these fintech products on, on a mobile phone, you know, you take a selfie, scan your driver's license, this kind of thing. It's massively improved what that onboarding experience is like, but you still have to do it every time, right? We showed that you could take the result of that, uh, store it securely in a digital wallet, and then when you apply for your second or your third account at a, at a different institution, you could share it instantly. Yeah. And that would be not only work technically, 
but the reason we did it in the FCA sandbox and the reason we partnered with Deloitte's uh, financial crime group on this was to show that actually it is very compatible with the regulations, certainly here in the UK and a number of other territories. So there's no there's no material reason why banks and others could not do things in this way and save their customers lots of time and frustration. Yeah. And there are core things they always have to ask and, and have proof of that would fall into that category. And then there's, there are other things, maybe more specific to the service that they're going to receive. And, and yes, they would have to collect the other more specific data separately. But still, you know, the core information that could be portable and reused and just be checked immediately. You know, it's, it's a win for everybody, actually. I can't see why. It really would, yeah. And there's a, and again, it exists today. We don't have to use the future tense. There's a company called Bonafide that works with credit unions in the United States, and they have a product called Member Pass, which does exactly this. It allows you to get a digital proof of your credit union membership, um, which you can use with that credit union. So if you're calling the call center, instead of doing uh, 20 questions of knowledge-based authentication, you can tap, tap on your phone and share your member pass that proves that you, the caller, are that member. Um, and it takes the wait times down from six minutes to a handful of seconds. It's extraordinary. But also you can use it outside the immediate credit union use case. So you could take it into a car dealership, for example, in the community and prove that you have a reputable financial relationship with this institution, which can fast track your application for credit to buy a vehicle, for example. So these are the use cases that uh, that Bonafide is forging ahead with, and they're live today in a, in a bunch of credit unions in, in the US. So we, we tend to talk about it in the future tense, but it's, it's very much making an impact for people today. And what about another use case that might be closer to home for people who are looking to go on holiday? <laughs> yeah, you're quite right. So yes, we're working with IATA, which is the, the trade body that represents most of the airline industry uh, on a product that you may have read about in the news called IATA Travel Pass. And this is an attempt to solve the massive problem that, you know, since the pandemic hit, the airline industry and tourism more generally is decimated, right? Passenger volumes have fallen over 80%, billions of pounds of revenues are lost. Um, and all, all anybody wants to do is get people flying again, but get people flying in safely. And so you've got quite a complex situation. You've got hundreds of airlines, you've got governments all around the world trying to set you know, reasonable sets of entry requirements that meet their own particular needs. And the general consensus is, well, in addition to proving that you have a valid travel document, you're going to be expected to prove your health status, at least until the pandemic is, is firmly behind us. And you know, that is going to require a recent negative COVID test and probably in future proof that you've, had, uh, you've completed a vaccination regime. And so superficially, that sounds fine. But of course, governments have slightly different rules on exactly which type of test you can get and how recently. And even we've got governments that call the same test two different things. And so it has to be encoded a certain way. And it is there's a lot of complexity to making that information flow. And you've got people in the middle, like uh, airlines and airport operators and things like that, who don't particularly want to be processing your health information. And they, they certainly want to keep their passengers safe and they they are very good at complying with entry requirements at their points of destination but it's it's data frankly they, they'd rather not have and so you know what they what they've told us very directly they don't want to do is build a giant clearinghouse for everybody's health information just like yeah. clearinghouses exist for, for people's reservations things like that having all that data in one place would be pretty dangerous honeypot
it's a burden. They've got to comply with all the data protection regulations, they've got to get safe and secure. And as you say, it's a, it's a whole data set they didn't have before, potentially. Exactly. And so if you think back to that NHS example, you can redraw the picture, can't you, in your mind without the big database in the middle. Instead, you can draw the passenger in the middle. And that is literally how the solution works. And so, you know, I had to conceive of solution that is sort of designed for the industry, by the industry, and it's based on verifiable credentials. So as a passenger today, I can download the uh, IATA Travel Pass app. I can go through a quick process to verify my passport, my selfie, things like that. Um, and then IATA will issue me a credential that, that contains my verified passport information. The next step is to get the necessary health clearance for my destination. So I type in my reservation number or where I'm flying to, and they will help me book a test at a participating COVID testing lab that will do the right kind of test for me. So I, I go there, I have my sample taken, uh, and I think in the future they'll be able to send samples to you at home and all, all kinds of different ways of doing it. But basically I get the right kind of test and instead of a piece of paper or an email that could easily be, be tampered with, and that is literally what they're doing today. People are showing up at the boarding gate, uh, at the check-in desk rather, with a printout of an email and people have to try and figure out if that's legitimate or not. It takes tens of minutes is on the quick end. It can take up to two hours to clear individual passengers in some countries because of these, these regulations. So instead of that, uh, what I get is a verifiable credential pinged straight into the Travel Pass app and it contains details of the test that I've had. And so those two things, proof of who I am and that I've got a travel document, proof that I've had a recent negative COVID test are what's required to satisfy the airline and the immigration authorities that I, I meet the entry requirements. And so uh, when I go to check in, and at various other points on my journey, I can be invited to share that information by clicking a link or scanning a QR code with that app. Um, and the person on the other end is able to verify that I've met those requirements and nothing else, right? The beauty of this solution is IATA is not sitting in the middle there, making sure all this information flows in the right place. And you know they don't have the motivation, but crucially, they don't have the technical ability to watch this as it flows through, right? They're just not involved in those transactions, which is really important from a privacy perspective. So I heard yesterday that Malta had decided that they wouldn't take the a customer holding up their NHS app vaccination confirmation on their phone and they, and they wanted a paper letter from the NHS. I was just thinking, wouldn't couldn't the travel pass be used for that? And is it possible that the vaccination programme is not able to link in with that IATA travel pass? Yeah, well, I think what this really shows is that you can have whiz-bang technical solutions and, uh, you know, there's, there's lots of shade thrown at the test and trace app, but the actual, the core NHS app, which has your COVID st uh, stats in it, is, is really good and it's, it's based on open standards and, and so forth. You can have the rails, but it's no good if people still don't trust you, right? And so there's there's a whole technology stack that sits behind, you know, what, what we're doing and what, what the NHS has done with that. and. Um, it uses the same technology, actually, the NHS app does as the, the European Union's approach. It's just that we're not part of the European Union anymore. But uh, if there isn't a trust framework that allows the person on the other end to depend on that technology, then it doesn't matter. So really, the, the issue here was less that, that Malta didn't have a way to scan that QR code. They, they do. The, the code for that is freely available, actually. It, it's more that uh, the rules, and you know, we, we talked about it a moment ago, the rules are complex and there isn't this overarching trust framework that allows for that, that trust to come from the UK to Malta. And so self-sovereign identity doesn't solve this by itself, but what it gives you is a framework. And there's actually a model called 
Trust over IP. If you if you look at trustoverip.org, you get to the the TOIP Foundation, and they they have this quite helpful diagram that shows on the one hand the technical stack that we've been discussing here, including that triangle model of issuer, holder, verifier, and so forth. And on the other side, it shows you the the trust stack, if you will, the, the different set of legal agreements and you know common schemas and things like that that need to exist for you to make sense of any of that technology. And so there are groups like the World Health Organization, uh, like the European Union, um, the Vaccination Credentials Initiative, the Good Health Pass Cooperative, there's, there's a whole bunch of them. We're active in, in the majority of those forums, as are a number of players in the space, who are working not just on the technology, but on the rules of the road, as you were, that can give you the confidence to trust that other technology. And so, you know, the, the multi-situation, I think, got resolved in, in about 36 hours. I, I believe today they, they will accept an NHS app scan. But the way that got solved is with legal agreements and assurances, not with any technical change. And so that needs to go along with it, right? We need an approach that says not just blockchain will save everything or even verifiable credentials will save everything, but here's how you know why you can trust these bits and bytes that you're receiving. Um, and that's that's often overlooked by practitioners in the space, but it's it's very important. Okay, very interesting. So some some great real world examples of how SSI can be used just to make life so much easier and in, you know, in a safe way without one or a small number of countries or individuals owning vast swathes of our data and our information. So, I mean, how could an organization get from listening to a podcast like this to thinking, oh, actually, you know, we've got this new app we've built over here, perhaps we could embrace some of this technology. Actually, we can look at our onboarding process and see whether we can make it more efficient and start to you know, move towards cutting costs and making life easier for our customers. Yeah, well, the, the technology exists. And so really it comes down to identifying those use cases that, that you want to start with. You know, the, the vision of self-sovereign identity that we talk about is this one where I get to use my data from domain A and rely on it in domain B, right? I use my driver's license in a bar in America, or I use my sports club membership to get a discount at a retailer um, or, or so on and so forth. I use my health information to board a flight. These are the grand unified vision that require a whole ecosystem to develop. And that, that takes time. But the good news is you don't have to do that all in day one. You don't have to wait for all of your buddies to decide to adopt it to actually generate some value. You know, the NHS didn't need anyone else to rely on their credentials. They had an internal problem, which is that, you know, while you think of the NHS as a monolith, it's thousands of institutions within there, myriad of different technical solutions, but but a willingness to, broadly speaking, trust, trust each other. That exists, I would argue, in most medium and large organizations, actually. You've got these quests for golden records, right? Single sources of truth uh, about the customer, or about the employee. And the simple fact is probably the best single source of truth is the individual themselves. And so you can start looking at problems where it's expensive or difficult or legally impossible to build the integration that you're talking about or the big new data lake that you've got in mind. You know, these things are starting to take on weight and, uh, and become very challenging. Instead, flip that model mentally and just say, well, actually, what, what would it be like if I could get that information directly from the individual, but but still rely on it as if it came directly from the source. Once you learn this way of looking at the world, you see these use cases everywhere. 
that's what's really exciting. So a lot of companies start out with a single use case like that, where they're not necessarily wanting third party outside their organization to rely on the information. They're just solving a problem that they've got, like call center authentication, as we mentioned in the credit union case, moving staff around in the NHS. In the airline industry, it's obviously many airlines, but they've got a common problem, which is I need to get passengers onto planes um, and I need to verify their health information. You find, find a use case like that, then you can implement it in such a way that doesn't preclude you from doing the future use cases, right? Previously, you go build that solution. And then the next time you wanted something, you'd have to graft it on and you'd graft it on, you'd graft it on. And that's why we have these silos because actually they get to a point of complexity and kind of calcification that wedding them to some other silo that some third party runs would be impossible. By building on these rails, you can effortlessly do that. Um, it, it's entirely a question of trust and not a question of, of new technology. And so the, the standards are maturing very nicely. The, the World Wide Web Consortium has a standard for decentralized identifiers, which are the bits that, that go on the blockchain we talked about earlier, and verifiable credentials, which are the bits that sit in your wallet. So those two things are quite mature documents now and have been adopted by literally hundreds of companies, not just startups like Evanim, but, uh, but large institutions, some of the internet giants and, and so forth. So the standards exist that give you confidence that you're not building something that will go out of date. We could share a link to those standards, yeah. Definitely will. Yeah, we'll, we'll stick a link in the uh, in the description. In the show notes, yeah. And the fundamental software that lets you build an issuer, build uh, a wallet for a holder, or build a verifier, much of that is open source. Uh, so you know, Evanim and others have contributed to some projects at the Linux Foundation's uh, Hyperledger project for for doing this. But there are other frameworks out there that also give you the base level building blocks for it. And then there are companies like Evanim that provide software and services at the level above that, that hide all the complexity of the standards, all the fast evolving open source stuff, and just give you really easy APIs that let you focus on your business problem rather than worrying about uh, anything's happening below there. And so, you know, we offer a, a free developer plan. You can sign up, pay nothing and go build your application. And then when you're ready to scale it out, at that point, we can support you by uh, introducing you to the rest of our network and, and so on and so forth. Oh, that's okay. That sounds fantastic, actually. So um, obviously we'll have uh, James's details in the show notes as well, if anybody wants to contact him for that, because that sounds like it. You've made that sound like a really approachable entry level way of getting into this. Well, that's very much our goal. You know, we want this to be everywhere. And so we, we're always trying to keep the barriers as low as we can. Um, and it's not perfect. You know, I'll, I'll be the first to admit that while we're working very hard to make the tools super easy to use and hide some of the terminology, you know, it is still quite bleeding edge under the hoods. And sometimes some of those rough edges show and things like that. But, you know, we've had we've had customers implement demos in, in a single week from, from not knowing anything about it to then demonstrating to their, their senior executives um, and, and getting projects greenlit off the back of it. There's over a thousand developers now um, who have, have access to our software and are building things. And, and as you mentioned, we're, we're working with you know, really well-respected, incredible organizations like the UK's National Health Service and IATA and so forth on some of the world's most high-profile production deployments of this stuff. And so it's not as mature as it will be one day, but there's certainly no need to sit on the sidelines and kind of wait and see how it goes. The, the people who can see the benefits are absolutely jumping in today. I, I can imagine they are. I mean, and coming through you, they'd have an access to a great ecosystem that they can then be part of. That's right. They're forging those solutions forward. Exactly. 
So it's a great topic. It's our future. And I always get very excited about talking about things like that. So, so thank you uh, again for uh, sharing your stories. They're, they're great. Unfortunately, that's just about brings us to the end of our episode of GDPR now. Have you got a final thought or a word you'd like to say on, on this topic before we close the show? Anything that you, that we haven't already touched on, which is quite difficult, actually. We've touched on quite a lot. <laughs> it has been a very fun and wide-ranging conversation. I, I suppose, yeah, the, the, the final thought would be to, if, if I can encourage people to do anything with this, is to keep this in the tool belt, right? This, as, as you go about your work, whether it's looking at uh, data protection issues and how do I minimize my company's exposure and liability or whether you work in digital transformation and you're trying to figure out how to bring on new customers and make that experience as effortless as possible, or maybe you work in compliance, you know, how can I possibly keep out the fraudsters? You know, I, I just want people to, to realize that this tool exists. Um, it's not it's not science fiction. You can have a model for digital interactions that are both strongly centered around the individual, very respectful of that of that individual's privacy and autonomy, but are also very secure and very easy to rely on. And so that is a tool in the tool belt that I think practitioners across the space can really benefit from knowing about and, and ideally getting hands on with. So I just really encourage people to, to take a look. And I'm sure they will, and I hope they do. And any questions at all, please contact James. Yes, please do. Um, okay, so sadly, that brings us to the end of GDPR now for this episode. If you have any questions, please email me or obviously contact James if you want to talk about moving forward with your SSI solution. I won't be able to help too much, I'm afraid, on, on that side. If you'd like to appear on the podcast, please do let us know. As always, to our listeners, thank you for listening and a huge thanks to James for his time today and a wonderful insight into self-sovereign identity and um, thank you very much and i'll just sign off and say that's it for me take care everyone and see you again soon bye